Okay, thank you all for joining us for this event um, titled Outsourcing to the Private Sector, Cheaper and Better or Neither. And this is part of our 10th anniversary celebrations happening throughout the day. Um, and thanks to our sponsors for making this and the entire thing possible. Now, the Institute's been doing um, work in this area on outsourcing and procurement for many years now. We've been looking at the 30-year or more experiment in having the private and indeed the third sectors deliver contracts for the government. Um, and our work's looked at when to contract and when indeed not to contract. The size of the procurement and outsourcing sector, which currently stands at about a third of public spending. And most recently, we've been looking at where outsourcing is working and where it isn't, um, and why, and what that means for the future of outsourcing. And this feels like a particularly timely moment to be having this discussion. Um, problems with the outsourcing sector are never hard, uh, far from the headlines at the moment. There have been a string of high-profile failures that have brought those questions into sharp focus, um, and Labour's further enlivened the debate um, by calling for a range of services to be brought back in-house. But based on our research, it's also the case that outsourcing has indeed worked quite well in some areas. It's delivered in some places high-quality services, and it's proved good value for money. So there is the danger of throwing the good out with the bad in this debate. Um, today, we're going to focus on the current challenges in the sector. Um, we're going to talk a bit about where outsourcing's worked, where it hasn't worked, and what's driving that. And crucially, we want to focus on where next for outsourcing, what does the future hold? And I'm really delighted to have an excellent panel to join us for this event. We've got Rupert Soames to my far left in location, uh, rather than anything else. Um, he's the CEO of Serco. Uh, Joshua Redaway, who is the Head of Practice, Commercial and Contracting Value for Money at the National Audit Office. And Chris Giles, um, who's the Economics Editor at the FT. So we're going to kick off in a moment with Rupert. And once we've heard from the entire panel, we'll have some discussion amongst ourselves and we'll make sure that there's time to take lots of questions from the audience. Um, so, Rupert, I'm going to go to you first and let you kick off. Thank you. Right, thank you. If I get the technology right. Right, I'd like to start by doing a quick poll of attitudes to outsourcing. So can I ask you please to raise your hands if you believe it's okay for a private company to be contracted to clean loos in the NHS? Thank you. And can I secondly ask you to raise your hands if you believe it appropriate that Serco might contract to provide High Court judges? So what I take from this is it's not the nature of the buyer, private or public, but the nature of the work that is at question. And where people draw the line between which state services can be provided by private companies and which should be the preserve of the state varies greatly not only between individual attitudes, but also across different countries. For instance, we in the UK, we think of the fire brigade as a state-provided service. My God, a fire brigade that is run for profit? Hmm, we would say. But in Denmark, fire and ambulance services are routinely provided by private companies and for profit. However, tell a Dane that companies can run prisons and they will swoon. Likewise, an American would be astonished that UK airspace is managed by 
a private company. And the US Coast Guard might be somewhat surprised to hear that in the UK, lighthouses and safety-critical maritime navigation marks are owned and managed, wait for it, by the Master, Wardens and Assistants of the Guild of Fraternity or Brotherhood of the Most Undivided Trinity and of St. Clement in the Parish of Deptford, <laughs> commonly known as Trinity House. Now, it turns out in this that nature does not draw lines. She frays and smudges them. And that that smudging is a function of national history, experience and culture. Now, many people in this room may be uneasy about private companies like Serco running prisons. And I spend a lot of time in prisons and I've seen some absolutely appalling public prisons and some brilliant private prisons. And the evidence of my eyes tells me that private companies can run prisons just as well as, if not better than, public enterprise. But the private sector is equally not immune to awfulness, as evidenced by the take back by the Ministry of Justice of HMP Birmingham last year and the year before the Secure Youth Training Centre at Medway. Now, some might in this room might find it odd that responsibility for the development, manufacture and storage of the UK's nuclear warheads is entrusted to the private sector, to a joint venture between Lockheed Martin, Jacobs Engineering and Serco. So the truth is, though, that at their best, state-run services can be splendid and exemplars of good service delivery. And at their worst, they can be dreadful. And exactly the same applies to private providers, who sometimes manage to make a complete mess of even relatively simple services, and yet on the other hand are seen to be capable of delivering some really highly complex services extremely effectively. It all depends on how well the services are designed and specified, how well they are contracted, how well they are funded, and how well they are led. And if nothing else today, I'd like to ask you to remember for, the, for all the problems and the scandals you see involving private companies delivering public services, remember that we are the same equation as you get in public life. Few of you here and few of you are bothered to listen for examples of successes, either private or public. There are over a million people employed by private companies in the UK delivering public services, and the vast majority of the time, they work just fine. It is the small minority of public services and private companies providing public services, these are the ones that we hear about, not the successes. Now, a question I'm sometimes asked is, can we boil some ideas down? If we accept that there are extremes at both ends, but there's a middle ground somewhere and nature draws line, can we establish some lines, some harder lines, about what private companies should not be allowed to do? There are three that I can think of. One is killing people. 
Um, there was a wonderfully robust sec permanent secretary at the MOD who, when I asked him what his job was, told me that his job was to make sure that we as a country had the wherewithal to go abroad and kill the Queen's enemies. Fair job description. But I think that private companies can provide the guns, neatly cleaned and sighted, and with good ammunition, but pulling the trigger is, to my mind, a role only for employees of the state on Her Majesty's Commission. Another is investigation and prosecution. Again, the private sector can provide support, but the decision to prosecute should be the state's. Although I note that nature irritatingly smudges this line as well, because, of course, the prosecutors are nearly always entrepreneurs called barristers. Finally, I think that the responsibility for taking decisions about people's fates, be it in court or on matters such as the denial or grant of benefits or of asylum, these should be held by the state. Again, I think that the private sector can do a lot of the groundwork. We might even recommend, as happens on disability benefit, an initial decision. But the final decision, the golden thread of accountability, must, in my view, always lead back to the democratically elected government. In life, it's my experience that actually it's really helpful to know what you're trying to achieve before you set out to achieve it. And I suggest that engraved upon the forehead of every public service commissioner should be four objectives and three principles. In terms of the objectives of commissioning a new public service, be it from our private, be it from the public or private sector, I would offer four objectives. Quite obvious, really. The first is, obviously, quality and reliability of service. Second is value for money. The third is transparency and accountability. And this, for the public sector, is perhaps one of the most difficult things to get to live with. But there is also a fourth objective, which I am very keen on, which is I think it should be an objective of public procurement to improve the efficiency and productivity of the general economy and of public services that represent such a large part of it. So alongside those four objectives, I'd like to suggest three clear principles that should underline public procurement. Principle number one is that there should be a presumption in favour of contestability and against um, against producer monopoly. We've had a discussion downstairs about whether you can have a market where you have a monopoly buyer, and I think that it's just one of those unfortunate things we have to put up with. The government is buys things that only governments buy. It doesn't mean to say that you can't have private companies bidding for that business. But generally speaking, my whole life, my whole life experience has been that monopolies are bad news and they need to be, if you've got to have them, they need to be regulated. So in my view, there should be a presumption in favour of contestability. 
I think all major service commissioning should be subject, at the very least, to structured make-and-buy decisions. Principle number two is that insofar as uh, decisions involve judgments that materially affect people's lives, that decision must, as I've suggested earlier, even if only on appeal, be taken by the state. Principle number three is that the transparency and accountability which you would apply to the private sector supplier should apply equally to services provided by the state itself. Now, to those of us who inhabit the Stygian shadows of outsourcing and Whitehall, these, pr these principles, I think, sound worthy but impractical. We all know, don't we, that government will never want to apply the same level of transparency and measurements that it applies to private providers on projects that it does for itself. So, should we give up? I don't think so. I think we have to KBO, keep buggering on, trying to argue for transparency, for accountability and for measurement of public services, whether they be delivered by private companies or by the state. Thank you. Thank you, Rupert. Thank you, Rupert. That was a real um, tour de force through the current state of outsourcing and the principles that should underpin it. Um, Joshua, I'm going to come to you next. Um, sit here. Absolutely. So, cheaper or better, um, or neither? And I think um, going to cop out of the question as you'd expect me to and say not if it's, doesn't, not if it's uh, managed badly and certainly the National Audit Office has been looking at the way government contracts for well since the 1880s um, if you look at our predecessor organisation um, certainly in 2013 we said there was a crisis of confidence I'm afraid due to one of your predecessors and Circos and G4S and so on and scandals were going on in 2013 so crisis of confidence then 2014 we looked at um, the way the government's contract managing things, and it said, we said, uh, systematic, deep-rooted, cultural misunderstanding about what contract management was, leading to systematic underinvestment. Um, at that time, we definitely said, we're saying, uh, that contract management was not happening, and that contracts were not well managed, and therefore it's not surprising that these scandals were happening, and that there were problems. Roll forward five years, are we still as pessimistic? And I think the answer is no. I'm actually cautiously optimistic about the way government has invested in its contract management and the way that it's managing contracts. Um, so let me make that argument. Uh, essentially, it's done two things, and some of you will know kind of like the detail, but it can really be boiled down to, to this. It's brought in more senior people, and it's looked at its current cadre of procurement professionals and it's, looked, and it's really asked them to rise up to, to becoming commercial experts rather than procurement experts. And in doing so, it, it's given them, go, taken them all through an assessment centre and it got rid of about a third. It then said, we're going to train up another third. And we said, only a third of you are meeting our standards. That's a pretty radical thing to do to a cadre of 4,000 um, civil servants that have been the, the backbone of the procurement profession. Um, and it also brought in lots of people from the private sector as well um, to kind of make these, these senior commercial advisors. 
So it's what in, you know, basically you can now trust that departments have a handful of very senior, very well experienced commercial people that it did not have before. And then it's also worked on the basics and at the kind of like lower levels, um, partly by departments doing their own version of that um, with junior staff, partly by bringing in standards to try and raise them, um, partly by putting in more resources to do that. Um, and my hope, really, um, is that that kind of means that the hygiene stuff is getting done in a way that it wasn't happening before, and that we're now able to move into spaces <coughs> of what I would say more interesting contract failures. Uh, more interesting because, um, you know, selfishly, I quite enjoy looking at the more interesting contract failures, uh, but really because I'm hoping that by contract, con but that there are fewer of them, and it really allows much more of a debate about not are we contracting what we're currently trying to do? Are we actually doing what we're trying to do properly? But is the way we're contracting the right way to contract? It's a totally different question, and I think that raises new ways of doing things. So let me kind of illustrate three stories, current audits that we're doing. The first, I can't, I can't say what the contract is because we haven't published the report yet, but to be honest, the detail wouldn't make it into the report. I just want to illustrate what I mean by basics. Um, and that's a really simple bit of administration, is the contract change log. And I think it's a bit of a bellwether, because um, under British commercial law, contract law, um, the contract's not the thing you sign, it's the way you're managing the contract as you go along. When you get to a dispute, normally, nobody can agree what the actual contract is. I have, in 10 years of looking at contracts, very rarely come across contract logs that actually list every single change that's been made. But now we've got the commercial standards that are going out there. I'm pleased to say that for the first time, in asking the basic questions of asking for the paperwork, we're getting this stuff, which means that we're able to say, well, that is the contract, now we can start the audit, rather than doing the audit and getting to the end of it and only then actually establishing what it is. It's really basic, boring administration. But that's the fundamental layer on which you can then actually get to a proper relationship and actually get to proper service delivery. Um, I also say, basics, important. What does more fleet of foot senior staff do? What does that mean? So a study that we did last week is actually on Brexit consultancy um, and looking at the use of consultants across the public sector. Um, so spending controls came in in 2010 and the use of consultancy in government fell enormously. Last two years it's been on the rise, quite, quite dramatic rise in the use of consultancy. Um, <coughs> one of the hygiene factors unfortunately, a um, couple of years ago the uh, consultancy one, the framework for which all consultants should be bought, came to an end. You would have thought that government would be quick in the market in setting up the next one. But unfortunately it was still waiting to hire the senior category manager and to put in place the, its proposals for how it's going to shake up consultancy and procure them in a new way, that there was a delay, such a delay in fact that that, that contract has not or is only just now in place. And that meant that when the government needed to turn to the consultancy market, it didn't have a framework for which it could do that. Um, but you've now got these more fleet of foot senior commercial advisors that are able to work within that system very much a story of you would not wish to have started here, 
but they did identify that each department was kind of procuring consultancy on one-off basis, and they thought, well, no, we've got to get our, we've got to, got to get a grip on this. So they decided to put it through a different framework. They actually put it through a through one for health and social policy, um, which is challengeable under procurement law. Um, they also put put it to a market that didn't realise that they were competing for um, consultancy on Brexit. Um, but they basically judged that there were basically the entirety of the market there when you look at the big consultancy contracts. And they decided to do it for a taxi rank system instead of doing individual procurement. So they were actually doling out the work on a first come, first serve basis and splitting up the market that way. Sorry. Um, and why do I look at that? Well, it's actually quite an intelligent way to do it, given the constraints they're under. This is definitely people that are quite clever at knowing how to manage this market, do, taking risks that are actually quite smart to take because they knew that they probably wouldn't get challenged and they didn't get challenged, um, but operating within a system that wasn't quite working because they didn't quite know where all of the consultancy spend was. They didn't really have a category plan. They didn't really have a way to actually get drive best value out of those. They were making do. And I think that's an improvement, because I'd prefer to see the civil service make do with clever people doing clever things, but I'd also prefer to see a system that was working in the first place. So that's kind of like the second story. What do I mean then by more interesting contractual failures and different ways of doing them? Well, it, they, it's not because the basics have gone wrong, it's because much more interesting things that um, I think we do need to properly understand and analyse and really look at it if you're going to actually improve the way we contract and the forms of contract and the, the kind of commercial relationships and not keep on being at a high level kind of on the, ba on the basics or saying, oh, well, they should have done this boring administrative thing. Uh, so let's take Crossrail. Because when the work Crossrail was set up, basically everyone thought that it was fantastic um, and the governance should have delivered. Um, certainly that was the story Crossrail were saying for a very long time, right the way up until late 2018, and as you're probably now aware, there is no Jubilee line that you can get on to go back home today. Um, that's now probably 2022. So we've got a two-year delay and we've got a few billions of pounds um, overspent. So why did that happen? Well, there were some programme management issues and there were some cultural issues in the governance there. But commercially, if we just take that question of commercially what was happening, um, you had 36 NEC free option C contracts, which I'm sure you're all aware are um, all around partnership working. And these were designed, and they'd been used in the Olympics very effectively, to not bring about disputes and challenges. The problem is when you've put 36 of them next to each other, they each have disputes not with, between the client and the contractor, but between the different contractors because of this tunnel doesn't quite fit with that bit of tunnel. The wires are on the left-hand side there and they're on the right-hand side here because the escalators um, fitting team are at that station when they should be at that station. And these knock-on consequences, combined with the curtailing of the um, timetable, meant that the commercial model was exacerbating risk, not helping to manage that risk. And I just put that forward as a much more interesting sort of problem and how you deal with that, one that should have been dealt with by Crossrail Limited 
properly managing the integration risk and having a plan, and unfortunately it, it just wasn't monitoring enough what was going on. That I think I would like to see in the nature of debate about contracting and how you get to solve those difficult issues. That's where I'd like us to be, and I'm much more confident that we can step into that space over the next five years, as opposed to the last five years, which have been about putting in place contract change logs. you said before I come to Chris, you, you know, you've described uh, the investment that government's made in commercial skills um, over the last few years. And Rupert, I wanted to ask you, sitting on the other side of the fence, is that something that you feel you felt the effects of? Are you seeing a government which is more kind of uh, canny and able um, when it comes to its commercial skills yes. and contract management? Yes, no, I, I, I do. I mean, I, um, uh, I think it has uh, improved at a startling rate, actually, the uh, capability uh, within government. But... Um, uh, so, uh, th and they have gone at it with a will, and it's one of those things I say about government. Government is incredibly disorganised until it decides it really wants to do something. And as Joshua was saying, going and taking 4,000 people and putting them through assessments is something that I don't think many commercial organisations would dream of uh, doing. So the answer is yes. Thank you. Last but not least, Chris, over to you. Well, thank you very much. I was going to say many things that, that Rupert already sort of preempted me. But I was just going to start with what does, what does the state or what does government do when you stand right back? And I think it does three things. It, it buys or produces goods and services. And this, this, argue, this debate is very much in that space. Uh, it redistributes money from one group of people to another. And that's essentially separate here. Uh, and it regulates. It regulates the private sector. And again, and so what we're talking about is in, it, we're often aspects which are in between the first and the third uh, of those uh, three functions that a government actually does. Uh, and when you look at, often so in the press, we, we get involved in, you know, you, get, you, you see the fashion about things. And I was looking uh, at what we've been writing about in the outsourcing world in the last few years. And if you, went, if you went back to the late 90s, early 2000s, it was all about how much stuff was happening and how much new stuff was happening. We were going into building schools for the future and all these new, particularly um, capital projects which were being purchased essentially from the private sector. But now um, all the news is essentially in things not quite working. The big news stories, Carillion, Interserve, probation services, uh, even when we're talking about essentially companies that have been in the private sector for a very long time, the water sector, things not working very well. That's certainly where the fashion is. And when you then you look at where labor is, we, we are very much in that world. But when you stand back, there is clearly going to be outsourcing. There's going to be a hell of a lot of outsourcing under whatever government, under whatever circumstances, because the state is not going to do it. So what we're really talking about here is where you draw boundaries. Where is the boundary between, when you're thinking about the purchasing and providing side of the role of government and the regulatory side of the role of government, where is that boundary between uh, state provision and private provision? Uh, and again, most of all, all the difficult questions are in this vast grey area in the middle. There are some very easy things. We are not going to have a government that is going to procure and produce and build its own police cars. This is a, this is a perfectly uh, functioning market. And on the other side, as, as Rupert says, we're not going to have a private sector that 
pulls the trigger or, or sends people to prison. Or even um, uh, th th there's quite a few other aspects of public sector which are essentially taking decisions to redistribute. I think those, those are sort of aspects which will always stay with the state. So in, in the grey area, I think then, then we need to start asking why are things going well and things not necessarily going well? And why are we seeing this fashion, which was all about how much the private sector could do, how much it could bring in, which would be the say, the say I think particularly in the government before the coalition government and the Labour government, uh, and now we're sort of seeing some of the pullback and the fashion is about what's going wrong in the private sector. And some of this actually comes down to, I think, uh, some of sort of deep problems within politics. So if we look at what was happening in, in Labour, as we know from various emails that were published from Sriti Vadira, there was only one game in town, and it was the PFI. If you wanted to get things done, you had to go and outsource whether it was good value for money or not. There was, there was no other way of doing it. And you sort of know when, when politics is putting uh, those sorts of pressures on you, where the government has an arbitrary rule, which is you're not going to have debt over 40% of GDP. That was the key driver of PFI being going private and many other decisions, things being described as current spending rather than capital spending. So the whole of the way the rail franchising sector was subsidised and was built up was essentially to hit Gordon Brown's rule of uh, debt going above 40% of GDP. And of course, you know, because this was a, utterly vital for the economic health of the country, we were told, uh, before 2008. And we've, not, we've had debt twice that level since then, and we really are not going to get back to a level of debt at 40% of GDP till maybe the 2050s or 60s, and it, then if only everything goes very well indeed. So we can see that the politics was ultimately driving what was happening in the way uh, things were being outsourced. And I think we've been seeing that in the austerity period as well. So that instead of having the only game in town was that you had to go out and outsource, more recently it's that you've really, really got to cut costs. That cost is absolutely everything. And you are going to drive down the price of your contracts, regardless, ultimately, whether service quality goes down. And you are going to make allowances for services. And then you're going to try and blame the contractors when things don't go very well afterwards. And then again, the deep, the deep problem there is the politics at the start of it, and then it goes into the contracting process. And we can see this, there's going to be some big problems in the future. You have our health secretary at the moment and potentially our new prime minister, he's not going to be prime minister, uh, but, uh, but Matt, Matt Hancock saying how wonderful Babylon is for, for contracting for GP services uh, particularly in big cities. And we know, because of market failure, that all Babylon are doing is trying to find and attract the cheapest and best uh, patients to be on their books, leaving the rest of the GP services with a much worse uh, sort of average client base in terms of cost. And this is going to cause almighty problems for GP services uh, in future. And this is totally known. This is all part of economics' is adverse selection problem. Uh, and we, we can see it, and it's going to happen. Uh, we just don't know exactly when it's going to blow. We knew that with, uh, with PFI, that if you're going to, to say that the, the most important thing, the only game in town, is your debt, 
levels, then that will cause uh, risks. We know that in the social care system, if you raise minimum wages and then you don't fund uh, local authorities well enough, that it doesn't matter how good or bad your private sector social care providers are, they are going to go out of business. Uh, so we have these ultimately, right at the heart of this is, is actually the political decisions. And I'm going to stop at that point and just say that whenever we're thinking about contracting, we know there's going to be the big grey area in the middle, uh, which is exactly what is best. And, you know, you can go back to the 70s and you say, well, clearly when you had huge restrictive practices in the public sector, there was a need for greater private sector involvement. Now, when we've got terribly thin equity mar margins in a lot of the private sector, maybe we, we've, we've gone too far and we, we need to rebalance. And those are, very, those are very nuanced decisions. But at the heart of it, there's a hell of a lot of politics there, and that is ultimately going to drive a lot of success and failure in the contracting system. Thank you, Chris. So before I um, come to the audience for questions, I had a few of my own. And first of all, I just wanted to dwell for a moment on your point, Chris, about the current focus um, government has had on cutting costs. And in the course of the Institute's own discussion with industry, we've often heard that if in the bad old days government wasn't very good at negotiating contracts and, and getting costs down and some companies were making out like bandits, um, today government is incredibly focused on cost and that actually it's pushed the margins down too low to a place where it's not sustainable and that's been one of the big factors behind the kind of challenges that lots of outsourcing companies are facing. I mean, do you think that's fair or do you think that we should be placing greater, grain, um, greater blame at the foot of the companies themselves? Rupert, I'm tempted to go to you first on that one. Well, I just want to just react first to something that Chris said because it reminds me. When you hear, uh, and quite rightly, you see, for instance, the uh, senior management of Carillion being said, How, what do you mean you were paying out dividends when your cash flow was that bad? And you were, you were doing this with your balance sheet and you were doing this with that? How dare you do that? How is it possible that such evil people are at the heart of our commercial system? And then you get into why was PFI being done? Why was vast amounts of our debt being shoveled off to the side so we didn't have to declare it? What is that if that is not? some form of, uh, of opaque financial mani uh, manipulation. What is it if it is not opaque financial manipulation to go along to local authorities and say, we're going to um, uh, uh, put up the minimum wage, but we're not going to give you any more money? I mean, these sorts of lack of transparency is not reserved only for the, pri for, for, the pri for the private sector. I think the thing about driving, government driving to save cost is absolutely appropriate. They should bear down on it. But the context of the austerity of the last eight years has been not on bearing down on costs equally across government. It is going to say, we're going to ring-fence the NHS, we're going to ring-fence Social Security, we're going to ring-fence uh, education, and we're going to turn around to the MOJ and say, you're going to take 40% of all your budget, but the number of prisoners is going to go up. So it's the disproportionate allocation of those cost savings that has caused, um, uh, I think, so much um, uh, damage. And the fact that, broadly speaking, you are, you are right. There has been a disregard, a disconnect between the people who were doing the purchasing and the consequences for the quality of the service out the other side. <coughs> 
I think, yes, I'd agree with that. And I think there's also a danger, particularly where you have uh, rather thin markets for, for contracting or for tendering, where, we, again, we know this in oil contracts, which have nothing to do with the public sector, that there's a winner's curse. Whoever, particularly in rail, we've seen this, that whoever essentially has, wins the contract by bidding the lowest for a particular franchise quite likely has got something wrong in their analysis or hopes that they can game the system around the edges. They, they know that the core contract will be loss-making, but then they hope that they can make some money up elsewhere. And as we've screwed down costs and people have wanted to keep contracts, we are getting, I think we're seeing more and more of this, and particularly, therefore, in the rail sector, we are seeing a lot of contracts being handed back simply because they could never really essentially have been uh, run at the price at which they were uh, agreed. So, a couple of points on that. Um, firstly, provider failure is part of markets. So, if companies wish to do tremendously stupid things, um, and it, they should be allowed to in a way that allows them to fail, so long as, as the customer, the taxpayer or the government, the serv you are able to get the service and everything you want. There is also a problem, of course, that the government also has to pick up the pension liability as well and things like that. So there's, there's regulatory issues as well in Carillion. But um, <coughs> in general, we would take the view that companies should be allowed to fail, but the customer should be protecting itself. And the problem with the winner's curse, and it's absolutely, we say it all the time, is that a lot of these contracts are not designed to allow the provider to fail, because if the provider fails, the customer gets hurt. Um, we've seen that in rail franchise, because they've bought these rail franchise on the promise of returning profits at the end of the contract, and they don't get through to that period of the contract, they surrender it because it's not worked before it gets there, so the taxpayer has lost out in a lot of money. Um, We've seen that in the amount of work that the government had to put in to ensure stability of Carillion. Uh, it's something that actually we believe is a real symbol, uh, you know, sign of the increased commercial capability that the government had, that it was able to manage that relatively smoothly um, and have a soft landing there. Um, so, what do you do about thin margins? Because all of the intelligence I pick up, and I'm not on the front line, I'm kind of like talking to government customer, you know, clients who are telling me about the wor worries they've got about their contracts. It's that it remains, it has been for several years, but it remains an incredibly fragile market at the moment. Um, and I would say that government does have a duty to ensure that it is paying a fair rate, not because I have a particular concern for the profits of the companies, but because if those companies are not making a profit or not capable of making a profit, then it will be ultimately the taxpayer that gets hurt because it's not working. That's why some of the stuff around should cost modelling, something we've been pushing for some time, is so important, but it's, you know, it's unproved. Um, the idea there of should cost modelling is that the civil servants basically should know how much a good price is for something. That's, that's definitely a contestable proposition is one that I hope that you should be able to do because some services basically you should be able to say well 
you've got 100 people, you know roughly what they're paid. If they're going to charge you f half of that and say that then they're probably going to take 50 people out. So let's have the conversation. Is that what you're doing? How are you doing it? That sort of thing. But I still, you know, too often you see bidding processes where one, where you're left with only one reasonable challenger at the end because the other one has fallen out or where the, the winner's pricing is way below anything anybody else would put. And those, those warning signals, um, you know, they should shout really loudly to people. You should not, you know, it's a brave person that goes for a bid that's that low compared to the, the competitors. So can I just say, first of all, I have been controversial. I think the government handled Carillion incredibly well. Uh, and actually we bought some of their healthcare contracts. And I don't think there was a single school meal or a single hospital floor that went uncleaned. They actually handled the transition really well. Failure should be part of it. If you go and put yourself out to the Qataris and they haven't paid you 40 million quid and you, that causes you the problem of a balance sheet and you've been paying too much on your dividend, this is not something that can be uh, stopped. And anyway, a Carillion, essentially a construction company, they go bust the whole time. They do. It's the highest rate of insolvency of any sector in the uh, UK. I think the fragility of markets point is really important. I think what the government has failed to observe is that the barriers to entry into this market are actually quite high because you have to go and comply with long tendering processes, but the barriers to exit are tiny. So when I was running a Greco, we had a factory, we had two and a half billion pounds worth of generator assets. We couldn't just walk away from that. It would take us a decade to get away from that market. Now, if we don't like contracting with the Home Office, we just don't bid. And when the contract comes to an end, you don't have any redundancy liability, you just tupe your people away and walk away. And this is one of the reasons why the markets are becoming incredibly fragile. I personally think that they can be rejuvenated. I think they can be rejuvenated because the problem is not low margins. The problem, in my view, is it, uh, I think that if you make 5 or 6% out of government contracts plus your overheads, you're fine. That should be okay, provided they are low risk. You have low margin, small balance sheets, relatively low risk. So you might lose a bit, and you might make 8% rather than 6 but you're not going to do what happened to us on the Compass contract, £120 million gone on a single contract. PEX, £55 million gone on a single uh, five-year um, uh, 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 contract, in part thanks to Boris going and putting cycle lanes all the way through um, uh, 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 London. So it's these mammoth risks that, that deter people. And the US market, where we have just gone and bought a company out there, we're much happier there because we make 5 or 6% margins, doing a lot of the work is on cost plus, the risks are containable, you're, bar you're, you're doing work that is well defined. That's what will recreate a, a market. You've got to take out the risk, of the, the thing of catastrophic risk. And what do you make of government's attempts to solve some of these problems to date? Since Carillion, you know, Cabinet Office has published their playbook that, for those of you that don't know, is, is guidance to try and ensure that government gets outsourcing projects right from the start, so includes new requirements around things like piloting and living wills and so on. I mean, what do you all make of these? Do you think these are likely to have a powerful effect on the outsourcing sector? Well, 
Uh, I live, live and breathe the playbook. I have a copy of it beside my bed. <laughs> I've also invited um, uh, my fellow CEOs to dinner at Wilton's, and we're going to have a short straw. We're going to hold our hands out like that, and he who or she who pulls the short straw can go and be the first one to challenge a procurement on the basis that it doesn't meet the playbook. Um, so we don't know how it's going to uh, work. I think a lot of the ideas are very good. Of the four principles that we Circo put forward, which were transparency, fairness, early exit, and and uh, uh, and, and living wills, to uh, Joshua's uh, um, uh, point, um, guess what? The one they have implemented is, of course, living wills, because that's to their advantage. We haven't seen so much on transparency and fairness, but I think it is. You know, I think one can be. It is a step in the right direction, but it really does need a somebody to go and test the playbook and make sure that it is actually okay. being um, used. I think that, I mean, there's a lot of truth in that. Um, I mean, the, the background to the playbook, uh, as I say it, um, was a series of public accounts committee sessions last year, part of which Rupert eloquently putting the need for some of this, um, partly the work the NEO had done, partly the work PAC had done, and partly the realisation from the Cabinet Office anyway that something needed to, to move in the space. Um, obviously, we don't get involved in writing guidance or anything like that, but it did feel like when it came out that it was um, borrowed heavily from previous NEO work, so I was certainly felt, you know, I don't mind being people stealing from any work. That's what we're here for, um, to set, set stuff out. So there are a number of things in there are actually really quite important. But they're quite, they only will work, like should cost modelling, like mm -hmm. risk allocation tables. So this, isn't this a really basic idea? We're really worried about risk being allocated to the right player. So requiring them to set out who the what the risks are and who they're allocated to is a good thing. That is not going to solve it. It just prompts a conversation. And we, we were advocating this because we borrowed it from the PFI days um, where they did it for all the reasons that Chris has just set out, unfortunately, to get it all off the balance sheet. But it doesn't mean it wasn't good practice and it's not possible to, to do. Um, has it made a difference? No. Couldn't have done because there hasn't been a single contract that's been let that's used it yet. Um, it's too early. Uh, there aren't that many contracts being let. There are areas where it's being piloted, and I do look forward for, should we come naturally in our forward work programme to looking at those, to, like I say, well, I'm already starting to ask for the commercial standards and being really pleasantly surprised that stuff is there that has never been there before, and I look forward to asking around some of these complicated questions around outsourcing. Um, in my own patch, because I do work in pensions particularly, as well as commercial across the piece, I'm really interested about how they apply it to the health um, transformation programme, for example. But there will be a number of places where I think we will be saying, OK, how did you go about that make and buy? How did you work out about the cost base? How did you work out about the reallocation of risk? OK, I'm going to open it up to questions now. We're going to run out of time. I'm going to take questions in threes. And if you could just um, say your name and which organisation you're from. Um, we'll just start over here. Uh, 
uh, yeah. Nick Sherman, I was um, uh, managing director at Amy's uh, local government business. And just to uh, turn to local government a moment, because I think it's in the firing line for uh, this outsourcing debate. And a lot of councils are now insourcing, not out of ideological reasons, but because of the failure of the contractual models that have been set up uh, for long-term delivery. Uh, so typically a private enterprise will be looking for a five to ten year perspective in order to recover uh, its investment in people, in capital. Uh, and what has happened with austerity is that budget horizons are now very short and looking forward in terms of risk, uh, it's a very high risk of further reductions. It makes it extremely difficult, if not uh, impossible, to contract um, uh, and make the long-term commitment that the companies are looking for. So I guess my question to the panel is a more basic one of how do we cope with the risk of change within the existing uh, procurement uh, contractual model that we've got. Thank you. Uh, David Sainsbury, I just think there's one other criteria about where um, it works and where it doesn't work, and this is a question of whether you can measure the performance uh, of the company. I mean, I think the probation service one is an absolute nonsense, and always was a nonsense, because there is no way you can properly me measure whether the probation uh, service is providing or not. And uh, interestingly, uh, you could see how idiotic this could become uh, when I think about two years ago, there was a proposition that the government would outsource policymaking uh, in particular areas. And this, this seemed to be complete nonsense because when then the policy uh, proposal was put forward, how on earth did you decide whether it was a good policy or, or not, other than having policy staff who would, who would do it? So I do think there is another criteria, and that's why the probation service was, was absolutely should never have gone through, because it was a nonsense on that basis. Uh, hi, I'm Naz. Uh, I work for the NHS. Um, I was wondering about uh, an episode of Yes Minister I watched recently about the introduction of failure standards for contracts. Is that something that you think we do or do well? And is that something that we should probably look at providing in the future? Great, thank you. Okay, so we've got one on uh, coping with the risk of change and point on measuring performance as one of the other criteria and point on standards. Who wants to go first, Chris? Um, I'll first of all take on, I'll not take on, I'll agree with David that, that measuring performance is, in, in, is, it was one thing I was, I was intending to say is exactly that, that when you, when you can't measure quality, it's one of your market failures. It's an information failure. If there's, if there's asymmetric information, there's no point in contracting it to, to a separate organisation where you, where you have no ability to know the information. On policy, I know that what you said there was, was fascinating because, of course, we do contract out certain policies. Monetary policy, one of the most important national policies, is entirely contracted out essentially to the, well, it, to the, to the Bank of England on an operational basis. And that is uh, also uh, under quite a lot of scrutiny at the moment. And for precisely it's, not, it's not with commercial motivation. I mean, it's not that we give them a contract and say, you know, you, we'll pay you this amount. But if they fail, 
the, the, the big the, the, the big question with the with the Bank of England is, is sort of the, the same point you were making is that where does accountability lie uh, particularly when you're at a, a point of very low interest rates where it's not entirely clear where accountability lies it's and it's what is exactly creating tensions in monetary policy and having independent monetary policy across the world at the moment. So th th these things, even when we think they're possible, they're actually harder and we ha we're having second thoughts about them. In terms of um, the local government, all I would say is now that we are not going to have a, a, a three-year spending review this year because of Brexit and the Conservative Party leadership con contest, uh, we're certainly not going to have any, there's going to be no change in this. Local governments will have no idea they're going to get a budget for a year sometime in the autumn with a new government maximum, and it's going to be a real last-minute struggle. So that's not going to change until we have a new and slightly more generous uh, spending review period, which we, I think, will be earliest will be 2021. So, a couple of things. First of all, on local government outsourcing, the fact that some people are taking things back in-house. Actually, a healthy and mature outsourcing market always can, has a pretty fluid thing of some people bringing stuff in-house and some people putting stuff out of house. I don't think that that matters so much. I do agree with you that the timescale which, which you have to look at things is more difficult, but let's just take the IT contracts. I mean, days were when a council or provider had to go and buy a, you know, a room full of IBM P series to go and do its accounting. Now you don't have to buy any of that, you just go and rent it off the cloud. And so I think there are things that can assist that. Uh, David, to your point, I mean, my pushback to you say you should only outsource things that you can measure. I mean, I would start from a position is that you should only do things that you can measure. Why, why would you want to get government? Is the definition of things that government can do things that you can't be bothered to measure? I mean, I think we need to invite... Now, sometimes we go far too far in measurement. I have running a, uh, a, um, a prison where we have, well, we used to have 138 different KPIs measured daily. Uh, we've now got it down to merely 35. But I think that government, some, the danger is that government sees laziness about performance measurement as being an excuse not to go and outsource things. Oh, and the NHS? I, I am... I wish I have campaigned for a. I don't. I want to see performance of contractors against their contracts on which taxpayers' money is being spent. I want to see that made public, because the taxpayers paying for it, not against every KPI, but against money, uh, and that will create a spur of competitive energy because if I see G4S are doing better than me on KPI 5, let me tell you, somebody's going to get a sound thrashing. <laughs> I mean, I basically agree. Um, <laughs> um, and in fact, you know, part of my job is to bring about that transparency of when things work and for a long time, the, I mean, the, the assumption is, the constitution is, that the accounting officer and permanent secretary is responsible for the delivery. And Parliament very much happy, PAC very happy to take the accounting officer um, to task when things go wrong. 
and the NEA helps by providing a report. But for a long time now, we've been saying there are two sides to a commercial relationship and that the provider also will need to um, ste step up and say how they've delivered their part of it. And that's why Rupert and others have had the um, delight of appearing in front of the Public Accounts Committee um, on those, those exceptions, I believe you described them in the, in the portfolio. Mm. Um, <coughs> on measuring performance, I think that's right. I mean, the accountant in me says that there should be a good receipt note. Um, and so when, as in, when you get a good delivered to you, you should be able to know the goods to be delivered. And it's the same thing for a service. You should know when the service has been delivered. And you yeah. can kind of extrapolate that as you wish. When it came to the TR, um, and that was at that time there was quite a lot of these payment by results, this idea that payment by results would absolutely transform public services and you could do a black box and you didn't need to know what was going on inside them. Um, we were so worried that we did a guide to payment by results um, and some, you know, it's also we had people looking at back some of the history over the last 150 years of payment by results because it's not a new idea. Um, it's been used time and time again and it always has pretty much the same results, uh, which is to drive very narrow performance yeah. on the thing that's being measured. Yeah. And it can be very good. I mean, when it was applied to schools and teachers were paid payment by results, the exam results do improve, but that's, that's what happens. That's the thing that they do. Um, we made the point that you've got to be able to measure it. You've got to be able to measure it quickly because particularly where, the, you know, a lot of this was arguing you're going to get civil society involved and charities. Those charities cannot stand there waiting two or three years to find out whether or not what they've done has worked. But also... What sort of management model is it where you've got to wait two or three years to find out what's worked? That doesn't really fit with a political mm. cycle or anything. So, yes, basically. Um, risk of change within contracts. I, th I think this is a really interesting one because contracts too often sit there as a rigid thing that people feel unable to open. And for a long time, the philosophy on the public sector side was that you've got, you procure them during a comp competition, during a bidding mm -hmm. process, and you should never re reopen that, touch it again until you re-procure, yeah. because you'd be doing it outside of competitive pressure. And therefore, any renegotiation of a contract, uh, the private sector will win things over the public sector, which is always out-negotiated. Out it's a philosophy. The problem is, it's very, very difficult in a first-generation contract, possibly difficult in a second-generation contract, and even not easy in a third-generation contract, to get the specification right, and to set, particularly to set the performance regime and the KPI regimes, and to set exactly where those should be, such that whenever you go in and you look at a contract, nearly every single time, the ostensible way it should be managed through the KPI regime, say, you know, you need to achieve these five targets and these five KPIs and a set thing, they're never set correctly. Um, so you get a syndrome, I call it the green, the green KPI syndrome, where everything on the dashboard say it's green, and yet the client's really unhappy and there's a scandal mm. going on. Correct. You also get the opposite, where, where everything's red, and the client says, but they're trying their best. <laughs> And it's just not possible. We've agreed with yeah. them. It's not possible to achieve this. So which kind of raises the question of what's the blooming point? <laughs>
good contract management updates these things, keeps them, and there is that relationship where you can show some flexibility in re readjusting these things. And that does go to pricing and it does go to other things, which, you know, it's possible to benchmark pricing and so on during a contractual relationship. It's not always necessary. If you've only got a three-year contract, then fine, you know, Correct. keep it rigid. But some of these have got to be long-term in order to recoup the capital investment. And those sorts of relationships, I would see, I would hope would be dynamic relationships. Thanks, George. Okay, I'm going to take one more round of questions. Nisha, this is the Ministry of Justice. Um, I was interested to hear your um, dialogue about the uh, probation service. Uh, just, to, just to let you know, we did actually monitor them very closely. Uh, and reoffending is not something you can uh, actually kind of come up with a reoffending rate for this month. It's something that takes time. And uh, certainly pulling the plug on some of the community rehabilitation companies were due to the fact that we monitored them closely. But that said, my question is something else. Um, I'm quite interested in actually finding out your views about diversifying the market, because particularly in the Ministry of Justice, we have the big players, Serco, G4S, Sodexo, and so on, and billions invested in these companies in terms of our money, uh, and a lot of risk concentrated as you know, in, in a very, very small number of organizations. And with Carillion, yes, we did a lot of preparation before Carillion collapsed. That's why it ran smoothly. But the next time, we may not have so much notification of a company's collapse. So we are really quite keen to see how we can diversify the markets. And I was interested in, in your comment, uh, Mr. Soames, about uh, the barriers for people entering the market, as well as the existing part of it. Um, that is one big challenge we have. And the other thing is about the very, very small profit margins. And we are constantly trying to find way, other ways of um, providing incentives, uh, particularly on how we can innovate together with the private sector, which is a real challenge for government with not much money. And I just wanted to have, uh, get your thoughts on that. OK, thank you. Um Back here. If I could ask you to stick to one question, because yeah. we're running quite short of time. Thank you. Uh, yeah, Chris Sims, the University of Nottingham Institute for Policy and Engagement. Um, the, the title is outsourcing to the private sector, um, but of course, a lot of the outsourcing that's taken place, uh, particularly at the local level, particularly in social care, um, hasn't been to the private sector, it's been to the third sector. Um, I was just wondering uh, where would the panel's answer to the question on, in the session title differ if the third sector was included? Hugh Parry, um, a CSHR in the Cabinet Office. Um, just a question about whether outsourcing uh, might always be better uh, in terms of data and data held in private or public hands. I mean, you can write what you like into a contract, which is GDPR-based, but is there some data along the lines that Rupert outlined, there are some things that would be ring-fenced that you really wouldn't want out there, like like... Uh, making court judgments. Um, is there some data that we really wouldn't want out there and, and outsourced and basically out there? Yeah. Brilliant, thank you. Um, so we've got questions on diversifying the market. Um, you know, would your answer to the title question be different if it was about the third sector and data? Um, I consider these your summing up comments as well. Um, Chris, would you like to I'll, I'll only take the whether the third, well, my answer would change on the third sector and I think the answer is 
No, the, clearly the third sector isn't, isn't necessarily the same. The profit motive isn't, isn't there. But there are other motives and other reasons why people are motivated to do things that might not be in the interest of those who are contracting, just as you sometimes have, you have to worry about money sometimes with the uh, public sector. So I think, no, it doesn't. It, it just is different. But the answer is still it depends, and it depends how well it's going. And you only have to look at examples like Kids Company to know that uh, you can have third sector providers who cause scandals as well. Can I take a bit about data? I'm, I'm sort of curious about this, that there's some data that you wouldn't trust to the, to the, to the private sector. I mean, I'm, I can see one person in this room who I think might be clear to a higher level than me. But, um, you know, we run AWE. <laughs> it may not be personal data, but it's still very, very, very sensitive data. So I don't think there's something that says that private companies can't be trusted with, um, uh, with, with sensitive data. On the MOJ issue, I think that this is very, um, uh, I, I think it's very pertinent, Matt, but I mean, you want a wider supplier base, but of what? I mean, do you want, you, you intake prisons, you have four providers, G4S has got 5% of the market, Circo's got 5% of the market, Mighty's got 5% of the market, and the government has 85% of the market. So um, unless you're going to broaden the marketplace, it's hard to imagine that you want more prison providers, which is a highly specialist thing. You don't want to just give prison management to people who've never managed prisons before. The number of people who've managed prisons before is tiny. So I think you naturally are a monopoly buyer of things that only government buys, and you have quite narrow supply um, uh, 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 bases. And you're thinking about saying that, well, we were okay with Carillion, but we might not be with anybody else. I mean, if I may just humbly point out that I was brought into Serco and I had to raise a billion pounds to go and recapitalize the company to go and make sure that the risks that we had taken and cost a huge amount of money did not go back to the taxpayer. And we managed our way through. I do not think, other than small suppliers, where I can think of examples where small suppliers have gone bust and people left high and dry. Actually, the government has proved through Carillion, through Interserve, and through other things, of being pretty adept at managing financial distress in its, uh, uh, amongst its supply base. Josh. Um, on the third sector, I think categorically it's the same. Um, I think the inter I mean, there are questions about do you wish to contract with the third sector or do you wish to give them a grant? But once you're in the contractual space, the, I, I would expect good contracting as opposed to bad contracting with them. And good contracting will be to the benefit of the charity as well as to the government. Um, <coughs> then how, uh, how do you deal with diversity and, and um, MOJ? I mean, I'm kind of struggling to think what to say. Uh, having watched with acute interest, sometimes on the inside and sometimes on the outside, I mean, always observing as, um, what's going on in MHA since 2013. Um, and the amount of investment and effort that MHA have put in to try and 
turn around and beef up and improve their commercial function yeah, and the yeah. way they contract things. Yeah. And yet things keep on going wrong. <laughs> um, and I think you've, we've done, I, I certainly would not in any way, sorry, if I implied that MOJ officials were not all on top of some of these issues, they certainly were, and yet it still went wrong. Um, which is kind of puts you into that space I was saying about, isn't it, don't you want to see things going wrong for more interesting reasons? And I think the advice we gave in our last um, report on this to MAJ was take a deep breath and really pause before you go forward on TR. And I think that is what's happening. So hopefully that will allow to re now it's really invested and get there, kind of reset that. So, so if that kind of answers, I did not. <laughs> yeah. And then in terms of how do you deal with the new market and get diversity, the sort of thing we've been looking at is. Government needs to be an attractive client, um, and I'm not always sure that it has acted in a way that makes it an attractive client. Now, I say that because I hope it's slightly shocking that the auditor, who's due, you know, whose job is to really clamp down on spending and get drive value for money, would say that. But that's because I believe value for money and the best economic <coughs> outcome can be achieved by being an attractive client, um, and that you can actually reduce costs by being an attractive client rather than perversely trying to put clamp, you know, clamp down on profits and so on and, and so forth. I also think market engagement, um, going back to the TR example, MOJ put loads of um, effort into trying to get charities involved in um, transforming rehabilitation and then didn't allow them right at the end because um, they couldn't come up with the um, budget, but, uh, the balance sheet and parent company guarantees. Yeah. Um, Thank goodness those charities will now be thinking, given the, what actually happened to the CRCs. But that doesn't mean that MAJ was doing the wrong thing. That kind of market management, going out there really early, trying to attract people, and I think it's hard work, and yes, you may have barriers um, against it, but I do think it's the right thing and the, and the way to go. And I said, you said summar summarising, oh, sorry, on data, um, I think there's a policy question as to what the right data is, so I'm not going to, which I'm not going to answer, but Again, it comes down to there are safeguards, there are ways of dealing with it. Um, I've seen bad, I've seen, I've seen um, contracts that do not deal with it at all and then when there's a leak, people are surprised and there's no recourse whatsoever. And I've seen ones where there's been a huge amount of effort both before the contract and during the contract mobilisation to manage this. So I would again, go back to good contracting. So I guess my summarising remarks is I remain hopeful that a more competent civil service is going to be able to contract well, but I'm also not in the least bit fearful that I won't have a job in, <laughs> in auditing contract failure over the next few years. Joshua, thank you. Um, there's easily enough material to continue the conversation for a second hour, but my Director of Communications has just given me a very fierce look, um, which says it's time for me to draw this session to a close. Um, thank you all for an excellent set of questions. Um, thank you to the panel for a fantastic set of remarks. Uh, the Institute is writing and talking about the issues raised today on outsourcing um, every week, so please stay in touch with our work too. I think we're now going to take a short break um, before the next session begins. Thank you. Thank you.